there's only ever two questions that clients have. Am I going to be okay? And what is enough? Right? So everything a client says to you, markets are falling and worried. Ultimately, they're saying, am I going to be okay? Have I got enough? You can ask questions and you can peel the layers back and ultimately they'll filter down to, am I going to be okay? And and have I got enough? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. Today, we are speaking to the co-founder of Shaping Wealth, Neil Beige. Fortunately, we have had the opportunity to speak to all three co-founders of Shaping Wealth, Brian Portnoy, Joey Leary, and now Neil Beige. This conversation felt really good. It felt good as we talked about the human experience of money, an experience that we all experience no matter who we are. We went deep into the intricacies laying beneath this human experience of money. Often, our conversations tend to focus on calculations, solving complicated problems. But for many of us, these calculations aren't satisfying for the human desire for understanding, embracing, and being existence with the human experience of money. Neil did just that on this conversation. He talked about so many different fascinating things. We went back to start at the beginning, at the introduction of money into our lives as humans to really look at how we have evolved and how money has evolved over time. And we talk about how the sheer amount of information available these days is mind-boggling and it seems that our brains haven't evolved enough to process this information, especially when it comes to our financial lives. If you're like me, we're often left scratching our heads trying to figure out how can we possibly understand everything. And this is exactly what we talked about today. How do we experience that information? With a background in neuroscience, Neil explains how our brains aren't hardwired for all this information and how having, as Neil says, conversations that matter really help us to deepen our experience with money. At the beginning of the episode, I appreciate how Neil starts out with the starfish parable. I'm not going to explain what it is, but why I feel like it's significant is because the underpinning of it is having this philosophical outlook on our lives can impact the perspective that we have, and especially when it comes to our relationship with money. If you're looking for a soulful conversation around the experience with money, well, Neil does just that today. Neil has an extensive amount of experience with tech companies and behavioral finance. And during his career, he's been in front of audiences greater than 2,000 people as he presents using his unique style and ability to make complicated concepts digestible and relatable for the audience. 
As part of Shaping Wealth, Neil is revolutionizing how we can experience money using a fantastic technology platform. He's energetic, powerful voice, and a high energy speaker. I am confident everyone is going to enjoy this conversation. If you're interested in his work at Shaping Wealth, I encourage you all to go check out Shaping Wealth on the internet. Before we get to the show, if you want to support the podcast, there are two ways you can do that. One is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and to subscribe to the show so you get the next podcast as soon as it comes out. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Neil Beige. Neil, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to this, Sean, for a while. So, you know, everybody says thanks for having me. But genuinely, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward as well. It's fun to research and look up my guests in preparation for the show. And as I was doing this for you, I came across a podcast that you talked about this parable around a starfish. It really spoke to me. And while we are going to get into the origin story of the existence of the human experience of money, so to speak, I thought this would be a good place to start. Can you share with the listeners, what is the starfish parable and what drew you towards it? It is the most amazing short parable, but packed full of insight. Let me give you some really quick backstory. I was on vacation in the US, me and my wife, years and years and years ago. And we were on Martha's Vineyard and we were walking to a beach on Martha's Vineyard. And there was, as you went to a beach, there's like this public notice board type thing there. And there was nothing on it apart from one sheet of paper pinned to this notice board. And because I'm nosy, inquisitive, I went over and had a look at it. And it was this, this starfish parable. And I read it and it moved me, genuinely moved me. And, it, and the story is, there's a guy walking down the beach. And in the distance, he can see someone walking to the shoreline, throwing something into the sea, walking back, picking something up off the sand, walking back to the shoreline, throwing this something in, and repeating, repeating, repeating. Guy thinks, I wonder what he's doing. So as he gets closer, he realizes that the guy is picking up starfish that have been stranded. They've been brought in by the tide. The tide's gone out. There's hundreds of these starfish scattered everywhere, baking hot sun. And these starfish are just baking to death and he's picking them up and throwing them in back in the sea as quick as he can. And he says to them, what are you doing? And he says, I'm trying to save the starfish. And he says, but there's hundreds of them. It doesn't make a difference. And he looks down at the starfish in his hand and he says, it makes a difference to this one. And when I read that last line, it's just happened to me now, I kind of got the hairs on my neck stand up because it speaks to something really deep in us. We are constantly trying to change the world in this big bang way. We're trying to do all these grandiose things. And actually what it points to is, you know, the little actions we take are momentous, but we don't need to change everybody's world. We just need to change someone's world. And that for me has given me a framework that I've gone through my entire life using. Everything I do professionally, I know I'm not going to help millions of people save better or be better financially. I know I'm not. 
And if I can make one person's life better by the words I say or the actions I take, then I will die a happy man. I read that. I must have been 21, 22. I'm now 49, and I still live by the rules, if you like, of that parable on a beach in Martha's Vineyard. It's so fascinating on many levels. And I wonder who put that there, whose idea was to put that there because, hey, it speaks to um, the essence of the story. It changed your perspective. So it worked on your, your level. What spoke to me, it seems to take this like almost powerless perspective of I can't change the world and really puts it to really powerful to realize that, wow, actually I can change for the better or worse. I think we have to be responsible what we're talking about. I can change someone's perspective of this world. So that's right. And you know, Sean, I'll tell you another quick link story to this. The year before COVID, so it seems like a lifetime ago, four years ago, maybe, I was keynoting a conference in London and I stood up on the stage and I was talking about the power of connection and how we are more connected than ever before, but actually we're more disconnected to a degree too. And it was just, it was a general talk about connection and how we can be better towards each other, how we can help each other, how connecting with our fellow man is really important and all of that, just general connection stuff. And I said something in that talk that almost was like a throwaway line. And I just said, we've only got one life and we should be living it to the full. We should find purpose and meaning and wake up every morning with your vim and vigor and just attack life with everything you've got. Because life is challenging and yes, we are going through tough times, but it's also beautiful and we shouldn't be doing things that we don't like. And it was, it was a genuine throwaway comment to link to another part of the talk that I wanted to do. A week later, I get a text off one of the delegates saying, you've just changed my life. Really? Why? And she said, because I hadn't thought about life generally in those terms. I was on the train on the way back from the conference thinking, actually, I haven't been happy for a long time. And I'm going to think about what Neil said. What I'm now going to do is I'm going to change my job. I'm going to have conversations with people who I... I'm struggling to have relate proper relationships with. And she said, I started down this road and it is transforming the way that I live my life. And I just want to reach out and say, thank you. And for me, Sean, it makes a difference to this one type story. I didn't need the 800 people in that room to come up to me and say, you've transformed my life. But the fact that one did absolutely makes everything I do, every minute of my being worthwhile. Mm. You talk about impact and significance. I mean, that conversation right there speaks to the essence of it. I mean, we can have 2 million likes on social media and not have one meaningful conversation from that. Correct. That's exactly right. And we need to get away from that mentality of just seeking likes on a cosmetic level mm -hmm. and actually do things that make a real difference to other people's lives. We have such a privileged position as a fellow human being traveling on the same journey, you know, from cradle to grave. We, we all learn things that are, that are valuable and could be impactful to other people. And I feel, it's a personal statement, I feel we have an obligation to share that wisdom with people to try and help and impact their lives for the good. I like your word choice and obligation because I, I fully agree with you. Your story reminds me, and this is about you, 
but for listeners now and then, I they'll they'll come to realize that I I poke in my story now and then. But uh, last year, me and a musician friend we co-wrote a music album about my money story, and one of the lines in the song says, "We only get one song to sing. We get to get it right right now before our song is gone." And your conversation about we only have one yeah we only have one chance at this one life made me think of that That's line. Right. You talked about we're all. Well, you said human beings on this journey. You and I had a prep call about what we were going to talk about. And after that, I started writing down several things. And I wrote something that I want to use to set the stage for this conversation. So I wrote, you, me, and everyone else in this world, we're all narrators of a story we may not even realize we're telling. A story so profound, it shapes the trajectory of our lives in ways we scarcely can fathom. It's the silent puppeteer behind where we choose to work, why we choose to work, and how much of our precious time we devote to it. It whispers in the background, influencing how we nurture our relationships, how we deal with stress, what we put on our plates, whether we lace up those running shoes or not, and it even whether we find ourselves in a perpetual cycle of spending or saving. But what makes this story truly mysterious is its complexities. It's an intricate web of narratives, a collage of different voices within us, all vying for our attention. It's a symphony of desires, an orchestra of fears, and a never-ending struggle between logic and emotional. So, I say this because, Neil, on this show, we often talk about our own money stories. But I'd like to go way back to the roots of the existence of the human's money story. So where does the human money story truly begin? Wow, what a great question. To answer that properly, we have to kind of dissect that to a degree. We have to go back to the origin of what it means to be human first. And then I think introduce money as part of that story. So five and a half million years ago, we climbed out of trees and became bipedal. We're starting to walk around on two legs. The oldest known species that's been found in the Kenyan, in the Tujan Hills in Kenya, founded about 1978-79, was named Aurorin Tujanensis. And it has been carbon dated as our oldest known ancestors. Of course, anthropologists would argue that it's five and a half million with Australopithecus, Australopithecus, but five and a half million years or three and a half million years, it doesn't matter. It's a long, long time ago, right? Through that five and a half million years, you know, of course, we've evolved, right? We've been through different stages of us as a species, but we as kind of Homo sapiens, 50,000 years, really. So, you know, it's not really that long in the scheme of things, but the brain inside of our heads has been developing for millions of years and it's been adapting to the world around it for millions of years. And for a long, long time, the way that the world moved and the way that the brain developed were kind of from a speed perspective were, you know, you could argue were relatively in sync. But then the way the world started to develop, that speed kind of got dialed right up and societies and cultures were developing and evolving rapidly. The brain, in essence, trying to play catch up all the time. And then we do something to a degree completely flummoxes the brain. We start inventing these really random weird things like religion. Law or laws. And one of those kind of man-made inventions that we threw at the brain about 2,000-ish years ago was money. We kind of went, oh, we've got this thing now, this 
way of exchanging value for value. And, you know, whether it was a handful of seeds or whatever, you know, it then eventually turned into the first ever coin, the Lydian coin, and it turned into money as we know it now. The ultimate form of trust, where I can travel anywhere in the world and give a stranger something, and he gives me something back in exchange for that thing. I never need to open my mouth or say a word to that person, and yet we can have an exchange of value. But the human brain hasn't really figured these things out yet. So, for example, money is an emotional subject. So when we feel these emotions, part of our problem is the brain kind of goes, I don't really know how to deal with this. I know how to deal with fear and anxiety from being chased by lions, right? I get that. I did that for a long, long time. But now all of a sudden I'm feeling these similar feelings, maybe, I don't know, about money in the stock market because markets are falling and I'm feeling anxious and scared and I want to run away. Oh, you know, I definitely don't want to stay and fight. I want to run as fast as I can. And that's because what the brain has had to do is figure out ways of coping with these new inventions that we have, we have thrown at it. And the only way you can do that is to look back for reference points that look or feel familiar and kind of ascribe biological response to that. And that's why when markets are falling, as an example, it triggers the same biological mechanism in us, fight or flight, which is known as our sympathetic nervous system. It triggers that system because that's all it knows how to do. And the response is, I need to get the hell out of here because this feels pretty rubbish. And that's why people make stupid financial decisions. And I say stupid because ultimately they end up harming them and nobody else but them. The truth is, it's a perfect normal response. They're not being irrational. They're not making decisions on purpose, thinking, oh, I'm going to do something that will harm me in the future. But their response is such that they do things that ultimately will end up harming them financially in the future. And so we need to recognize that the decisions that we make today or the response that gets triggered in us to stimuli coming into the brain isn't new. It's millions of years in the making. And we can't just turn that off or take the advice of someone who says, stop worrying, <laughs> everything's going to be okay. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, you know what? Tell that to the 5 million year old brain that is seeing these things as a threat and needs to do something about us. So our money story, yes, we could argue, you know, it starts a couple thousand years ago with the invention of money as we know it, but its roots, its origin starts way, way back when the human brain in our heads start to develop to become the brain that we have in our heads today. I mean, speaking of brains and trying to compute things, my own brain right now is just trying to compute like, wait, is it even possible now to like the complexities that are thrown at us with the financial world, how rapidly everything is evolving, the stresses that we have in our lives, the financial burdens, the responsibilities. All I know is when my computer is overloaded, it just shuts off. I mean, you right. study neuroscience. What is, what is this bandwidth tax is a word from a scarcity book, scarcity, which I really like. Mm. What, what is the consequence? Or I guess my brain is getting flooded right now with so many questions. Neil, how do we deal with this? <laughs> the brain's job is to survive and thrive. Right? That's its job. It's to allow us to survive so we can reproduce, pass our genes on, and then kind of thank you very much and good night. Right? That's the brain's job. So everything it does on a constant basis is looking out for anything that can get in the way of me surviving and me thriving. So when it sees what it perceives, and there's a, that's a really important word, what it perceives to be a threat, because it might not be a threat, but the brain perceives it to be a threat, 
it kind of goes through this massive, rapid computation of, is this dangerous? What do I need to do? Do I need to get out of here? Am I okay? You know, a million and one questions. And it takes, it creates a response, an emotional response that allows us to then take a decision about what we do. That all happens in the blink of an eye. It's actually faster than the blink of an eye, but it, it happens in the blink of an eye. In order for it to do that, it has to take shortcuts. It has to do, you know, what, what psychologists would call heuristics. You know, it has to apply rules of thumb. So it has to kind of go, oh, I've seen this before, ignore. Or I've never seen this before, but it feels like this. And when that happened, I did this. Therefore, I'm just going to do that because that's the same bet because I survived that. And so the brain constantly, to your point, it kind of has to go, I've got the capacity to process all of this stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to skim the surface. I'm just going to take snippets of information, but where I need to delve deeper, I will, but I will also take as many shortcuts as I can to get to a place where I can make a decision. Because if the human brain took in every single, every single electrical impulse that is thrown at it and took time to process it, it would complete, like your computer, smoke would start to come out of it. It would just blow up. You just wouldn't deal with it. And evolution has given us the most phenomenal ability to filter through the noise very, very quickly and with minimal information, take an action that will allow us to survive and will allow us to thrive. I really like this framing around survive and thrive. And it seems to me as you're speaking through our various different heuristics that have been explored quite a bit of what they are. Maybe there needs to be more work of the underbelly, the meaning or how we can derive more meaning. But it seems to me that we've been good at surviving in the financial realm. We survive, we, we navigate maybe our fears and discomforts by looking at our portfolios, talking to a financial planner about how much money we have. And in a way, perhaps that suppresses some of, and I use that word intentionally, suppresses some of that fear. It seems to me the thriving conversation hasn't always been around. And perhaps, I mean, evolutionary speaking, thriving was not a thing we survived back then. But now I appreciate people like yourselves shaping wealth who are starting to have these conversations that are going beyond the portfolios of surviving, so to speak, into thriving. As you engage in a word that I heard you say online, which I like, conversations that matter, at Shaping Wealth and beyond with clients, colleagues, and friends, what patterns do you see, if any, that are emerging around this curiosity to thrive? Are these conversations starting to happen? And can it happen to, as, to say what you guys say, create this funded contentment? Great question. And so the answer is yes, we are seeing these conversations happening, but it starts with a recognition from both parties, actually, clients and advisors. Clients need to recognize that their money life can be complex. And I'm not talking about the numbers here. I'm talking about what we call the human experience of money. Borrowing, saving, spending, philanthropy, earning, they all carry their own kind of emotional signature, if you like. And, you know, so when we give, when we're being philanthropic and we give to people and to check whether it's our time or it's our money, the brain science behind that is really quite, it points to a place where the brain loves giving. It produces neurochemicals that make us feel great. You know, so the person that is receiving the charity feels great, but we feel great too, right? That's not necessarily true when we're talking about conversations around debt or borrowing. You know, you know we have 
$300,000 worth of debt over here. Well, that makes me feel pretty crappy, actually. And the neurochemicals that get produced in the brain then are very different to the ones that get produced when we give our time or our money. And I'm only scratching the surface here, but the point is, we just as human beings need to accept that our response to the various dimensions of our money life are different. There isn't one size fits all. And a conversation about borrowing will elicit a very different feeling to a conversation about saving or earning or giving or protection. You know, so all of these dimensions carry their own signature. So we need to recognize that, that there isn't just one emotion. There are multiple emotions and multiple ways that we deal with our money life. Advisors need to recognize that too. But there's another dimension here for advisors in that they need to also recognize when a human being turns up in our office, they aren't a client per se. They are a human being. And therefore, they come with all the baggage that comes with being a human being. You know, they walk into your, the advisor's office. They might have had a, been sat in a traffic jam. They might have had trouble with their children. They might have had an argument with their partner. They might be having trouble at work. What, whatever, whatever, whatever. They are dealing with a million things at the same time as now having to focus on answering quite complicated questions about their financial future. So advisors to use shaping wealth parlance here play two roles. They play the role of a mechanic and they play the role of a guide. And the mechanic is all about the technical aspects of money. So the cash flow modeling, the tax optimization, the asset allocation, whereas the guide focuses exclusively on the human experience of money. They look at the, cl the client as a human first, and they look through a different lens, and they accept that this is an emotional being in front of them, and that the multiple dimensions of their money life will elicit different responses and different behaviors. In short, are we seeing a shift? We are seeing a shift, absolutely. Advisors engaging with shaping wealth are saying, I completely get that I'm an amazing mechanic. You know, one of the best mechanics, one of the best technically trained advisors out there. But you know, with those kind of human skills, I really need help to sharpen them. And so we're seeing a lot of people coming to us and we're, we're fueling them with conversations to have with their clients that allows clients to realize that their experience of money is unique to them. And the way that they engage with that isn't wrong or right or irrational or rational. It's just perfectly human. And when those two forces come together, a client who feels that they are permission just to be human and an advisor who welcomes in that client with open arms and open heart, the dynamic fundamentally shifts and the relationship goes to a place that I don't even think trust in and of itself can take them. You talked about your hair standing earlier. I feel like that's happening to me right now. You said so many wonderful things there, like you're perfectly human. I just really like that statement, permission to be human. I've been thinking lately that to your point of this mechanic is that in our financial world, we have complicated problems that require complicated solutions, the mechanic part. But then we have this complex human nature, the human experience of money that for a while we were trying to solve complicated solutions, but it, it doesn't work that way. It's also a fundamentally different skill set. Yeah. There's an irony here, right? When I speak about this at, at conferences, especially, I say the mechanical parts, right? We're trained on this. We're not born 
as mechanics. We're not born being able to optimize for tax or build a, a diversified portfolio. We learn these skills. But the skills needed to be a great guide are actually already hardwired into us from birth. Mm-hmm. Our ability to have a conversation, mm-hmm. our ability to listen, our ability to show empathy, our ability for curiosity. But these are just, and I could bore you all to death with regions of the brain whose job it is to kind of elicit a response that is curiosity. You know, Wernick's area and Broca's area, part of the two parts of the human brain, one that kind of takes words in and understands the meaning, the other creates words and pushes them through our mouth so we can speak. You know, these are all skills that we have hardwired into our brain. But over the years, we've forgotten how to exploit them. That's not even the right word, but exploit them in the relationships we have with other people. We've forgotten the art of good conversation. We've forgotten how to listen properly. We've forgotten how to be curious. And we confuse empathy with sympathy. So what we're doing at Shaping Wealth is we're saying, whoa, hold on. There is a better way of being an advisor and showing it for your clients. And it's got absolute zero to do with the technical aspects, which you've got nailed. It's all to do with how you can be a better human being and show up as a better version of yourself for your clients. The advisors that we're seeing coming to us are coming to us with you know, a growth mindset and they are saying, completely get this, that, you know, to use a Joy Leary phrase here, the soft skills are the hard skills. And the people who are coming to Shaping Worlds completely get that. Very, very interesting. You know, you talked about at the beginning, we have this obligation. And I'm really hearing that whether we're an advisor a human, like a human, we're all humans, a spouse, a partner, whomever, there's this obligation to have these conversations that matter because these conversations are having unconscious, or they're happening to us whether we're consciously talking about them or not. And wow, does it feel good when someone sees us, they get us, they hear us. It does, it really does. And you know, there's a really interesting point here, Sean. And I don't mind sharing this, by the way, and showing a bit of vulnerability here. You know, about a year and a half ago, I, because of grief, I went through counseling. And a lot of my friends said to me, but you've studied psychology and the human brain. You know, why would you need to go and see a psychologist to help you? And I would, because the stories that I'm telling myself, the stories that are floating around in here are staying in here. And I need someone to help me extract that, find meaning, repackage it, and then put it back mm-hmm. in so that it makes sense once and for all. I remember having this conversation saying, the thing is, when we sit in silence and we tell ourselves stories, that's fine. But when we speak, when we talk, the brain has to process the sound. And sometimes you say something and your brain pro- catch it, you, you, you catch yourself saying it and you go, oh, that sounds a bit weird. Oh, I can't believe I think that. And that's because your brain is now processing the words. They're not internal anymore. You've externalized them. And now the brain has to reprocess them as an external sound. And it, and it finds different meanings in those words. That's why counseling is so good. Because instead of talking to yourself, you talk out loud and you hear yourself, but the, the person sitting in non-judgment also hears them and allows you to find different meaning in the words that are coming out of your head. And so when we say you need to be having better conversations about the things that matter, it's basically saying you need to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. You need to ask better questions. You need to be curious. You need to explore. You need to ask open-ended questions. And 
you need to couple that with listening skills, which means you ask a question and you close your mouth. You know, Joy at Shaping Wealth says this, a question is an invitation to speak. And the problem we have is that we ask a question and then when people are speaking, we are, and this is a natural brain process, by the way, but we are constantly thinking of what we need to say in response. So we're not really listening. And the skill is to ask a question, close your mouth and give 100% attention to the words that you're hearing and help people process this world or navigate this world that we're in. And so this being, turning up and showing up as a human and helping another human gets back to a question you asked a while back, which is, you know, how do we help people thrive? That's how you start to help them thrive. What's happening in the brain when you feel that, oh, wow, this person actually heard me. It releases a neurochemical, well, it releases several, but it releases a neurochemical called oxytocin. And oxytocin is the same brain chemical that's released when, you know, when you walk up to someone who you love and you haven't seen them for a while and you hug them and you just get that feeling, you actually, is very difficult to put into words. That's oxytocin flooding the brain. It's a trust hormone. And when you sit and someone, you genuinely feel that someone has heard you, it releases oxytocin in the brain. Now, why is that important? Well, oxytocin is needed to build trust. You can't build trust without oxytocin. It's kind of like the fundamental DNA, if you like, of trust. And so when you sit and you talk to another human and you know that they get you, they've heard you, you feel listened to, you feel seen, all of those things, your brain just floods with the neurochemicals needed to build trust and to form a bond with someone. So if you go to a meeting with a financial planner and you say to them, I've put my money in the markets, markets are falling, I'm feeling anxious. And their response is, oh, don't worry about that. We've got you covered because we have a diversified portfolio, blah, 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 blah. A, they're not listening properly, but you have just completely ignored the very real human response in the room. You haven't heard them. You haven't seen them. Now, how would that person feel? Because I'll tell you how I would feel. I would kind of say, did you hear me? Did you listen to what I said? Oh, yes, but no, that's, that's not the response. I don't, I'm not saying I know what the exact response is in that moment of time. It's not, I've got, you have a diversified portfolio, but it is more along the lines of, I'm sorry you feel like that. What is it about what's going on in markets at the moment that's making you feel like this? And you ask a question that allows them to talk. Oh, well, I've seen, I don't want to lose my money. Okay, so you know, let's explore that comment. And it's about peeling the layers and getting to the real heart of the question. And by the way, there's only ever two questions that clients have. Am I going to be okay? And what is enough, right? So everything a client says to you, markets are falling and worried. Ultimately, they're saying, am I going to be okay? Have I got enough? I'm really worried. My kids are going to school and I need to be able to, oh, I don't know whether I've got enough. You, know, you can ask questions and you can peel the layers back and ultimately they'll filter down to, am I going to be okay? And, and have I got enough? And when we miss that or dismiss it, the conversations, uh, I can't get to that meaningful level that you're talking about. This conversation, it makes me think about something again that I heard you talk about on another podcast about your wife. And I believe her name is Sandy. And you said on one podcast that despite, you didn't say this part, these are my words, despite you're an expert in this field, 
the neuroscience of money or the human experience of money, some of your most valuable lessons around money have come to your wife who is not trained, so to speak, in this field. And it really speaks to this idea of you're listening to hear her and not just, I know everything, you got to listen to me. I can only imagine that just help build the bond between you guys. It does. And it did. And we go through, you know, we got married very young, 21, 22. Like I said, I'm, you know, I'm 49. I'm still incredibly happily married. Best mates do everything together. And I think, and that's because early in our relationship, we just, hey, we formed our relationship as a married couple based on friendship. So we found that the, those commonality that made us want to be friends. But we also have this incredibly ingrained deep respect for each other's view. So when I was saying, oh, I've got some money, let's spend it and cheaper. Yeah, let's do that. But also let's just put a little bit away here, here over there. Let's do this. Let's take out you know, a, a savings plan and just in case, oh, really now let's spend it. Well, yeah, let's do that. But, and, we, and there was always compromise. There was always like, it was like two adults having a conversation. And I never got what I wanted exclusively. She never got what she wanted exclusively. There was compromise. And therefore, we were both kind of cool with that. We learned to, oh, that's the way that you go through life. I've learned more from her than I think I've learned from any other human being. People say this almost like in a, I sometimes feel people say this in a disingenuous way. And this is, this is coming from a place of complete truth. I wouldn't be sitting in front of this camera today talking to you if it wasn't for her. Because every step I've taken in my life, she has been nothing but a rock, a, you know, a huge support for me, helping me with my first fintech business I set up, leaving the big corporate world, you know, leaving a well-paid salary and all of that stuff to try and do something on my own. You know, so she's always been that voice of reason. You know, oh, maybe you should think of this, Neil. But she's also been the most supportive human being that I've ever, ever encountered. And I am completely blessed that A, she walked into the room where I first met her. B, all these years later, that she still wants to be with me. So um, it's all about just be showing up and listening and caring and realizing that, yes, we have this life together, but she's also going through her own life mm. and she has her own struggles and her own anxieties. And I'll never sit in judgment and say, you shouldn't think that or you shouldn't feel that. We have the ability to talk to each other and explore what are you feeling? How do you think about this? What do you think we should do? And we just show up as two human beings, but with this kind of now 20 plus year bump. I could hear your tone that you're genuine and authentic. And you could hear this level of curiosity. And you talked about the importance of curiosity before. And while this is about your, your, your spouse and your relationship, the sentiment of this goes beyond like our, our intimate partners to friends, clients, what you're doing at Shaping Wealth is this idea that, and I'm hearing this, is that we all are imprinted with so many different experiences of our lives that we cannot have the same lens. And if we have this rigid view that it should be done this certain way, we're dismissing someone. So thank you for that. And good thing you went into, my research tells me that it was a bar that you met her when you were a lifeguard. <laughs> That's really, that, that, oh my goodness, where you've done your research. That's exactly true. One evening in a little bar, I was lifeguarding at the time. I studied to be a PE teacher and then, you know, did lifeguarding. I was on my own in this bar. Just, I wasn't drinking, by the way. I'd gone in to buy food and I turned around and this kind of blue-eyed, dark-haired, Italian, Neapolitan girl walked in and 
I mean, I fell in love immediately, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's my personality. I needed to get her to fall in love with me, but eventually she did. And uh, yeah, it was one of those things. I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in, you know, anything like that. I just think well, it was a, an amazing moment mm. for me. Changed my life. Well, thank you for sharing. You know, we're, we're talking about stories and I hear you, Brian and Joy talk about stories at Shaping Wealth all the time. And human, we're story-making and meaning-making machines, really. As you reflect back on whether it's conversations with your wife, whether it's inflection points in your career, can you maybe share a time where you had a certain story around money, the way you perceived it to be, and maybe a moment of change? When we were doing a pre-call, I even, I guess I'll point it towards something is there was a change in the way I guess you saw your life and the experience of money with our four Neil. That's right. It was a wake up call, actually, I think. I entered the world of work because actually I didn't want to be a PE teacher. I finished all my studies and I'm kind of going, I don't want to do this, actually. I don't want to work with young children. And you know, my sister at the time was young and she would have been the age of the ch children that I would be teaching. And I just thought, oh, I couldn't teach 30 of that. No way. That would drive me, that would drive me mad. And I didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine said, oh, I've got a job at a financial services company in the UK, come in and just see what happens. And they were building a risk profiling tool at the time. And I helped, I helped with that and a couple of other things. And in that company, I was going to be there for, you know, my plan. Let's just do 12 months, see what happens. I ended up being there for like 15 years. And I worked my way up from the ground to being, you know, one level below the C-suite of this FTSE 100 company at the end of the day. And earning a really good salary, just me and Sandy, you know, really good salary, big house, fancy car on the drive, all of the things. And everybody who I was around, everybody without exception, all were running that rat race as fast as they possibly could. And when I got my company, first company car, it was kind of like, why have you got that car? You should have got a BMW or you should have got a Mercedes Benz or whatever. And I, and I'm going, no. And then somebody, oh, you, you should get rid of that car and do this. And then, by the way, you should move out of this house and buy this big five-bedroomed house because and it was all about status and keeping up with the Joneses and all of those things. And I felt hook, line, and sink it into that world. And I would get paid my salary every month and I would think, right, I've got all this money. What do I do with that? I've got kids. Oh, I'll tell you what, let's fly business class to Mauritius. Let's do that. Oh, let's get another car. We can do that. And one day I was sitting and thinking, why do I just feel miserable? Looking at my bank balance, why do I feel miserable about all this thing? Look at, place, look at that lovely car on the drive. Why am I miserable? And I, did, I didn't know the answer at all. I just could not put my finger on it at all. And so I just kept working, getting paid the money, you know, to a degree in hindsight, selling my soul to the devil. And then I got called into the chief executive's office one day and he just said to me, we're going to make you redundant. And you and 50 other people at this level, we're, all going, we're going to make you all redundant. Shook my hand, big paycheck to leave, you know, type thing, like I needed it. And, and I left. And it was in that moment that I kind of thought, why don't I feel sad? Why don't I feel upset? Why do I feel a sense of relief? that this has happened to me. And 
I went into a moment of real proper reflection and I came to the conclusion that the rat race was actually really damaging to me. It went against pretty much every value I have. It went against every guiding principle that I had. And that's why in hindsight, I kind of went, oh, I don't like this. This doesn't feel right, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. And so I decided, right, I'm going to use the money that I have in the bank for good. And I set up my first fintech company, delivering behavioral insights and trying to help real human beings figure out what's going on inside their heads so that they could make better decisions. Starfish parable, I didn't want to change the world. I wanted to change someone's world. And I spent all my own money researching that, building the company and, and all of that stuff. And I was happy with that. And that my bank balance started to go down and the further down it went, weirdly, the happier I was getting. <laughs> and then eventually... I get to where we are today. You know, I'm living in this lovely little house. I've got a decent-ish car on the drive, but money isn't this thing for me anymore. Don't get me wrong. I need to pay the bills. I still need to live my life and I still want to do good things, right? I still want to go on vacation with Sandy and do stuff like that. But I don't need the $50 million that I thought I would have needed at some point, you know, to live this life that actually was just for me. I'm not saying it's for everybody. For me, it was completely fake when you map that to my beliefs and my values and my principles. My money stories is one of, I thought money was the answer to everything and I just tried to accrue as much as I can and work my way through the corporate world to get as much money as I can. But throughout that trajectory, the higher I got up the corporate ladder, the more miserable I became. And when I fell from grace, if you like, and the money was taken away from me, my happiness conversely just went through the roof. And that lesson as part of my money story, was actually quite a profound moment for me. And now to kind of wrap up this question, what I realized only probably actually just before the pandemic, I realized this, was one day we were living on a little island on the south coast of England, the Isle of Wight. And me and Sandy and my little dog Archie, we were sat on the beach, we had a little barbecue next to us, and a bottle of wine, steak cooking on the barbecue, sun was setting. And for the first time in my life, I've never felt more content. Mm. I've never felt more at peace. And I looked and I thought, it's like a six pound bottle of wine, a three pound steak, you know, whatever, buy a bag of charcoal. You don't need a lot of money to live a life of contentment. As long as you figure out what makes you content. And all of these things are part of my broader money story. But actually, Sean, I believe they're part of my broader story. I'm a big believer that this Neil Bage's life is a story and you know, it's a book. And certain chapters have to have full stops put at periods, full stops put at the end of them in order for you to move on to the next chapter. And what I found when I went through counseling was there were several chapters in my life where I hadn't put the full stop at the end of the last sentence and the chapter hadn't been closed down. And those better conversations and deeper conversations allowed me to shut chapters down and continue with my story, of which my money story is just a part. Very insightful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm Your last point there about going back and putting close to it brings me to something that before we started recording, you, you just read this book, The Power of Letting Go. And although I haven't read the book, it seems to me that when you close these chapters, there is this essence of power of letting go so that you can, I guess, 
define what funded contentment means for ourselves. That's right. Funded contentment is the ability to underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. But what that means really is figure out what makes you happy and content and just spend your money on that and just do that. And it doesn't need to be anything big and grand. It just, it can be the smallest of things like for me, and I'm only talking about me sitting on a beach with a barbecue with my wife and my dog. You could never offer me any amount of money that would be able to buy that feeling of me. It's, it's, it's a feeling of inner peace that once you, once you experience it, you think, I want to repeat this feeling over and over and over and over again, because I just, I feel calm and relaxed and happy and all of those lovely words. My brain is flooding with endorphins and dopamine and all of the good chemicals that make us feel happy. And I think if I'm being honest in my previous life, the reason I felt like I felt is was because I was completely lost. I didn't know who I was anymore. And part of this story, part of one of my chapters is refinding or finding again, reestablishing my identity of who Neil Bage is. Wow. Thank you. And as you write this chapter or written portions of it, of finding through reflection who Neil is, let's transition into, we've, we've circled around shaping wealth, but it seems to me these are the conversations that you guys are facilitating for others as well. Let's touch on, for those who aren't familiar with shaping wealth and for the listeners who aren't financial planners, what the message you're trying to get across through shaping wealth is. We've kind of touched on it, funded contentment, everyone, mm. you know, so the way we work with financial planners and therefore enable them to work better with their clients is all about enabling them to have better conversations, to, you know, to learn, to grow and to thrive as advisors and pass on those skills and that knowledge to, to their clients. And we do that through training. We do that through content. But ultimately the mission statement of shaping wealth is funded contentment for everyone. The ability to underwrite, in other words, to have the financial capacity to live a life of meaning and purpose. And that's not what your neighbors want to do. It's not what anybody else wants to do. It's what you want to do. What brings you meaning? What brings you purpose? And how can you underwrite that life? How can you fund that life? You know, so that's the phrase funded contentment, you know, and it's such a simple powerful phrase. The ability to underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. Because sometimes we try and underwrite a life like I did in my previous chapters that had zero meaning to me. And it was so at odds with everything that actually I probably feel, and I don't regret anything I've done in my life, but you could argue that there's an element of, you know, oh, I wish I'd have done that differently. I wish I'd have gone out of that route, that rut sooner, but I didn't. And I look back on that chapter and I use that as my benchmark and as my inspiration for what not to do going forward. You know, and part of that story is realizing that what, what purpose and meaning is to me is completely different to you, Sean, right? And it's completely different to all of my friends. And that's fine because it's their lives. But I need to find out using my own head and looking at my own story, what gives me purpose and what gives me meaning? And I figured that out, I think. But I also realized that as I evolve and go through life, I may need to update that model and find something else that gives me meaning or purpose. I get that too. It's not static. 
And so when once I'd figured out that, and you realize that you don't need as much as you as you think you need, then I was able to answer those two questions. Am I going to be okay? I think I am. And what's enough? Well, I know what enough is to give me that sense of contentment. So actually, the two most fundamental questions that I think we have as humans, I feel like I'm pretty much way down the line of being able to answer them, given that I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. Fantastic. I was going to ask you for the listeners, a reflection point that you have used or perhaps you have seen through your research, but you just answered it. Answering that question, what is fun and contentment myself? Do I feel safe? And what is enough? And you know, Sean, let me leave you with this this point. I was going through a phase of my life where I had to make a big decision. I'd set up a company and I wasn't happy. And there was something not working well for me there. And I needed to make a decision, but I kind of go, well, why do I, what is this? And I, I got a pen and I got a bit of paper and I drew a two by two matrix on the paper. On the left-hand side, I wrote on the top left box, what am I good at? And on the bottom box, what am I not good at? And then along the top, what do I love? What do I hate? And I was that binary Mm -hmm. about it. There was no, what might I like? It was, what do I love doing? What do I hate doing? And I start writing in the boxes everything I was doing in my life. Without it, if it popped into my head, I wrote it down and I tried to find the box for it to live in. And when I looked at the box and what do I hate doing or what am I spending my life doing? It was round full of stuff. And then what what do I love and what am I good at? There was hardly anything in there. It was an epiphany for me. And I kind of used that matrix. I call it the freshwater matrix because of where I, I was living in a place called freshwater at the time and I'm not really that creative. So I called it the freshwater matrix. I've used it several times since and several people I know use it just as a quick, a quick tool just to figure something out. It doesn't give you a definitive answer of what course of action to take, but it, it, it takes stuff that's in your head and it puts it into a format that the eyes then need to process the data and you see things differently. So that for me, to answer your question, how did I get to figure out what funded contentment was? If it wasn't for things like that matrix, I wouldn't have been able to through the noise. And, and get to the point where I knew what funded contentment meant for me. Oh, so good. Hey, that is very creative. Fresh water matrix. I mean, it's a fresh way of thinking. It's amazing. I, I like it. But I hear so much of curiosity, surrendering, I think is what I'm hearing a lot, that you're surrendering to this new paradigm, whatever it may be, because you're discovering so many fascinating things. I think, Neil, I could chat for the rest of the evening, because I know it is evening out in the UK, but I want to respect your time. And the final question I've asked all 150 some guests on my podcast is a version of this. So let's imagine you're at end of life and I'm going to actually paint the picture. You're on the island of right with Sandy, Archie, a barbecue with steaks on it and a bottle of wine. And like I said, you're at end of life. You feel this sense of peace, ease, and contentment. And you decide to write one last piece of writing on what a happy and healthy relationship with money for Neil was. What would be a theme to that letter? What oh, a great question. It would be advice. I would like to leave a piece of advice to people. And I would like them to know that your life is your life. The path you forge in this life is your path. And it's a very kind of Steve Jobs-esque saying, but you shouldn't live your life 
walking parallel to somebody else's path. You should look at the direction of travel and just go say, and have the courage to go, I'm going to walk this way. And if others decide to walk the other, that's fine. You know, it's your life. And I think the more or the earlier in life you can figure out that your life is your life and you've got to make the most of it for yourself, using your phrase that the sooner you surrender to the crap that is social conditioning and and social pressure and doing things because other people are doing them or doing things because other people, or you think other people want you to do them. You know, and it's not about not caring. It's about realizing and recognizing that this is your life and you've got one shot at it. And that's it. You know, at some point you will close your eyes and they'll never open again. And it's a tragedy that lots of people, I see this day in, day out, go through life miserable because they are living somebody else's life and walking alongside their path. And the sooner you can figure out that you are the master of your own destiny, it releases the pressure off your shoulders. And for the first time, you feel free. And I think the sooner you can figure that out in life, the better your life becomes. Thank you. We did it, Neil. This was a conversation that mattered. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for all the work you're doing, you're the ideas you're putting out into the world. For listeners who want to find out more about Neil, Shaping Wealth, or wherever, what would you point them towards? Shaping Wealth, the website, shapingwealth.com. And Shaping Wealth and myself, we're on Twitter. I'm not a social media fan. You can probably mm-hmm. tell from this conversation. But I'm on Twitter at Neil Beige, N-E-I-L-B-A-G-E. So shapingwealth.com for the website and Neil Beige and Shaping Wealth on Twitter. Thank you so much, Neil. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thanks for tuning in. If you're still listening, that tells me that you enjoyed the podcast or it's just playing on the background. Either way, if you would like to support the show, I have two ways you can do that. One is to head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. And the second one, share the episode with a friend, colleague, or friend, someone you think who might enjoy this conversation. Until next week, have a great one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.